It is so good to be here together to celebrate uh, our risen Savior on this Easter. Just a couple of years ago, we did not get together in this room. So it is good uh, to be together. And, and it looks like we actually have a, a nice day today. And yesterday was great. Thank you uh, to all who came out and helped with the uh, Easter egg hunt. We had way more help than we anticipated. So we finished way before kids got here. But it was, it was great to be with our neighbors, to, to welcome them onto our property again. It was a really good time. Well, I, I, uh, I stumbled uh, upon an image from uh, several years ago. Um, I used to love baseball as a kid. Now I, I don't get into it until uh, the playoffs come. But I, uh, I remembered uh, back in 2016, there was this boy named Landon. I can't remember if he was like 10 or 12 years old. But he got to go to his first professional baseball game with his dad. It was a spring training game. They were watching the Braves, and I can't remember who the other team was. And it was, uh, it, it was, it was great. He had way better seats than I've ever sat in. And he was on his phone. He just took a picture of something that was happening on the field, and he was texting it to his mom. And uh, there was a, a batter that, that swung apparently really, really hard, so hard that he could not hold on to the bat. And it came flying straight at little Landon. He's on his phone. He doesn't have a clue. But fortunately, his dad was there. I want to show you uh, the, the picture of uh, his dad saving Landon there. I mean, everyone like, that guy's ducking. That guy's like trying to use the force on the bat there. That lady thinks her beer is going to save her. Um, but, but Landon's dad, he just reacted in the moment to, uh, to keep his son from, I don't know, surgery at least. I mean, that, that would have been horribly painful. And uh, anyway, I saw that, and it, it sent me into this deep dive of, like, other close calls on the Internet, which probably isn't worth your time. But I'll share one more picture with you. I can't verify that this is actually true. Uh, other people think it is. But there's a picture here we'll bring up now. It's, uh, this is um, this guy's great-grandfather fought in World War I. And these were coins that were in his breast pocket, and he was shot at. And, and those coins, like you can see what happened there. Eventually, the bullet stopped. Man, a, a close call. We like close calls when uh, they go the right way. Um, but when, when they go the other way, it's really hard. Right? When, you're, when you're so close to something, maybe, but you, you just can't get it. It's just out of your grasp. And maybe you've had that happen in your own life, a, a missed opportunity that was just right in front of you. Or maybe it was that school that you were trying so hard to get into for years and years, just trying to build up your resume so they would take you. Or, or maybe it was a job that you'd applied for, your dream job, and, and you, were, you were down to the final couple, and, and you thought for sure this was your big shot, and they gave the job to someone else. Or maybe it was that relationship that, that just didn't work out. It, it is tragic to be close and yet miss what's right in front of you. Uh, Sam Roberts um, is uh, the obituary writer for the New York Times. Uh, and back in 2016, um, he wrote an article for Vanity Fair. Um, they asked him to 
um, basically pretend that he was back in the time when Jesus was killed and to write the obituary for that Monday morning after his death. Uh, and, and Sam did, I mean, I think a good job. He had, to, he had to pretend that he just had the information that would have been available to him at the time. I, I don't think uh, that Sam's uh, a believer in Christ. There's nothing in this that, that makes me think that. My little research on the internet, um, I, I don't think he knows Jesus um, at all, but he, he did a decent job writing this. Um, he wrote a lot of things that, um, that were true about Jesus, and yet he completely missed who Jesus is. Before we get to the resurrection in Matthew 28. We're going to go to Matthew 27. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And, and what I want to do is I want to look at a few groups of people that um, each of them spoke words about Jesus that were truer than they understood. And yet they completely missed who Jesus is. And my hope today, and, and Jim echoed this hope, is that no one misses who Jesus is. Let's not come to church, sing about Jesus, hear about Jesus, pray to Jesus, and, and yet miss who our resurrected Savior is. At the beginning of the service, uh, Jim uh, spoke from uh, the Apostle Paul, or read from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul saying the resurrection to the believer is everything. If he didn't raise from the dead, then we are fools. We're wasting our lives. I realize that some might be here today or, or even online watching, um, and you don't know really what you think about Jesus. Man, I'm so glad that you are here with us. Uh, and, and I hope and I encourage you to keep pressing in, keep investigating who uh, Jesus is. What, what does the scripture tell us about Jesus? Because you need to know for yourself if he rose from the dead. If you're a Christian, maybe you're, you've been coming to church for years and years. Maybe this is your 30th, 40th Easter at church, maybe longer. My question for you is, does the resurrection change you? Right? At some point, I hope it changed you. But does Jesus raising from the dead continue to change you today? The believers we read about in Acts were transformed by trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection are you? You know the events that, that took place leading up to his death. Judas betrays Jesus. He sells him for basically just 30 silver coins, hands him over to the religious leaders. They hold a sketchy trial in the middle of the night, out of the eye of the public. They delivered him over to Pilate, the governor, demanding that he be crucified. Pilate couldn't find fault in him, but, but through some arm twisting, he, was, he, he agreed to sentence Jesus to death. And then in chapter 27, we come to verse 27. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him, took a reed, and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Apparently, there was a game that was occasionally played in, uh, in the ancient world around this time. At the springtime festival, they would dress up a prisoner as a king. 
They would pay him mock allegiance. For a night, they would grant all his wishes before they scourged him and killed him. And it seems that perhaps they were playing this king's game with Jesus. And we don't know if any of these soldiers had played that game with a criminal before, but I I doubt they'd played it with someone who was really thought of as a king. So they took the opportunity to mock Jesus. And how much they knew about Christ, we do not know. Certainly they'd heard at least that Jesus, this man before them, was called the king of the Jews. But looking at him, he couldn't be a king. There was nothing about him that screamed king. There was nothing that even hinted at him being a king. But they decided to play this king dress-up game with Jesus. And I don't know how much you've been around of guys. Um, Guys, sometimes uh, when they're by themselves, they can get a a little cruel. And it starts off with with maybe just a a little joke, a little friendly fire. Um, But then guys, in in our competitive nature, we just try and one-up each other. We're so competitive that even our jokes need to be better than the other guy. And, And it can get out of control really quickly. And you can imagine that happening here, these soldiers trying to outdo one another with their cruel humor. So they strip Jesus of his clothing and they mockingly put on him this this robe. It's supposed to be a king-like robe. They didn't have a crown, so they weave together this crown of thorns. And when we think thorns, or at least when I think thorns, I think of like little rosebush thorns, but these thorns were somewhere probably between three and six inches long. And they didn't just set it on his head. They pressed it on his head. They gave him a reed that served as his royal scepter. So the stage was set to mock Jesus. They knelt before him, Maybe some bowed to the ground before him and then sarcastically yelled, Hail, King of the Jews. And I'm sure the guards laughed at how funny they thought they were and maybe even slapped each other on the back for their creativity. They spit on him. They they punched him. Who knows how long they carried on like this, but eventually the novelty wore off. They ran out of jokes about the supposed king of the Jews. But Matthew in his gospel right away establishes that Jesus is the king. He opens with, it says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Son of David referring to King David, the greatest king uh, in Israel's history up to that point. God had promised David back in 2 Samuel 7, back in the Old Testament, that there would be a king forever from his family line. There'd be a forever king. By Matthew 2.2, 2, we read about the Magi. and Christmas, we think of them as the, the three wise men. The Magi came, they came to King Herod, asking, where has the king of the Jews been born? Matthew regularly records Jesus talking about the kingdom. Some of the parables, sometimes we call them the the kingdom parables where Jesus establishes himself. He, He makes himself out as the king. Earlier in chapter 27, Pilate asks Jesus if he is the king of the Jews. And Jesus responds, yes, it it is it is as you said. So he responds positively, but you can feel almost this hesitancy in Jesus' response, not because he's not the king, but because he's not the kind of king that Pilate's thinking of. He wouldn't come in with political power. He wouldn't come in with his military might to oppose Rome. No, he's an altogether different kind of king. Even later in chapter 27, we'll read in a bit, others mock Jesus as the king. But even if he was a king, 
A king that's facing execution isn't great anymore, right? The onlookers, the soldiers meant their mocking of Jesus to be ironic, and it was, but the irony was so much more than they understood. They mocked Jesus the king, but the cruel irony was that he was the king. He was a greater king than anyone that day understood, except for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, we see with greater clarity than anyone that day that Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings. He's the king whose kingdom isn't some territory, some plot of land. His kingdom is, is over all things, but he's an altogether different king. There's a conversation that takes place back in Matthew chapter 20 that I think sheds some light into how different of a king Jesus is. Maybe you remember two of the brothers, two of the disciples um, come up with their mom because she has a request to make of Jesus. She believes that he is the king or at least will be the king very, very soon. And she asks Jesus if her two boys can sit at the places of honor on his right and his left in his kingdom. And to make a long story short, he, he lets them know they have no idea what they're asking. Their picture of the kingdom is, is nothing like what it will be. The other disciples find out, and they're obviously not too happy with these brothers. He tells them in verse 25 that the rulers of this world, right, kings, uh, politicians, maybe today we'd think presidents, CEOs. He says the rulers of this world, they lord their authority over the people underneath them. They're flexing. They want everyone to know how important they are. They're all about self-promotion, right? And, and maybe all this comes from a sense of entitlement or self-preservation. But Jesus tells them that it should not be that way in them, that it will not be that way in his kingdom. He says, whoever wants to become great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first must become a slave. And then he says, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But before the cross, they, they didn't get it. They couldn't get it. Jesus, the mocked king, exercised his authority in a way that sought the good of his subjects, which is what led him to be crucified. And even his disciples didn't have a category for a king that would literally lay down his life as a ransom for his people. Jesus, the king, gave his life for his people, and today he offers you life because of his sacrifice. Well, after the soldiers had mocked him, they sent him away to be crucified. By verse 32, Jesus is spent. He's exhausted. He's been up all night. He's been beaten. He's been flogged. I cannot imagine how physically sore he was, how emotionally, uh, mentally drained he was. And now it's time for him to carry the, the horizontal beam of his cross. He's got to carry it up the road, up the hill, but he can't make it even just a few steps. Physically, he's weak. So they find a man named Simon to carry it for him up to Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And once he's there, they nail him to the cross. And then verse 35, it says, And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. So when you're crucified, you're crucified naked. The death is excruciating. You're suffocating up on the cross. But if that wasn't enough, you're also humiliated 
by dying naked. So the soldiers are gambling for his clothes. Verse 36, then they sat down and kept watch over him there. There was a time um, when, uh, when they crucified people and the soldiers, once they're up there, clearly they're dying, they would walk away and go do whatever it was that they needed to do. And there are a few incidents of friends or loved ones that, that were waiting for the soldiers to leave. And then once they were clearly gone, they would go and, and get their friend off the cross and hope that they could, they could nurse them back to health. So there were some that survived. So by this point, there's a policy that the, the soldiers stayed through the death, that there was no escaping the death of this crucified criminal. So that's what's happening in verse 36. Verse 37, and over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So the picture is total weakness, right? Completely powerless as he's coming to the end of his life. No chance of being rescued from this cruel death. Verse 39, and those who passed by deriding him, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Now, earlier in his public ministry, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. And immediately he catches flack for this from those who heard him. They pointed out that the, this temple that they had at the time, it took 46 years to build that. Uh, that, was a that was longer than a lot of people even lived. So certainly the news of this had spread. And everyone that heard that he said he could rebuild the temple in three days thought it was crazy. And we get it. Right? Even today with modern technology, with prefabricated homes, it still takes several days, let alone a temple. So for Jesus to say, I'll rebuild it in three days, that, that's crazy. To rebuild the temple in three days would take unimaginable power. And in this moment, everyone that looked at Jesus couldn't, couldn't see any power in this man. He was weak. He was nearing his last breath. And maybe before this, at some point, there were some people that thought, okay, maybe Jesus can do this. We've seen him do crazy miracles. We've seen him feed the 5,000. We've seen him heal the, the lame and the blind and the mute. But now it appeared clear to everyone that he didn't have the power to do anything like that. After his resurrection, the disciples recalled what Jesus said about raising the temple in three days. They realized that it was his body that he was talking about. It's strange, but it was by his weakness on the cross that the power of Jesus is made known. In the Old Testament, the temple was the place where Yahweh, the absolutely holy God, met with sinful people. It was in the temple that the Israelites over and over again, they'd bring their sacrifices to the priests who would make the sacrifice uh, to atone for their sin, to pay for their sin. But the cross changed everything. D.A. Carson, a, a pastor, a teacher, a theologian, he said this, in Jesus' death, in his destruction and in his resurrection on the third day, that Jesus meets our needs and reconciles us to God, becoming the temple, the supreme meeting place between God and sinners. So not only did he become the temple, but he was our great high priest. He was the one to mediate between sinful man and this holy God. The priest made the sacrifice so sin against the holy one could be atoned for. And on, on the cross, it was Jesus that was our atoning sacrifice. So they mocked him for this weakness on the cross, but it was by staying up on the cross in weakness that he established himself as the temple and comes to the resurrection on the third day in power. 
Verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. I don't know if you ever do this, but sometimes in life, something will happen. And then once it passes, I reimagine how I wish it would have happened. This happens when I have an argument. And in my imagination, I've won every argument afterwards. Uh, One time, this happened um, in a situation. I was in college. I was at uh, QFC, where Wilco is now. It was late at night. These two punk kids stole, I think, bags of candy. And they, and they ran out, and some clerk like, tried to chase them, and I was just frozen. I didn't do anything. And then afterwards, like on the drive home, I imagined myself like dropping my goods and running after them incredibly fast, jumping, like doing a double close arm, uh, clothesline from behind, taking the candy, and then walking them back in. It did not happen that way. Sometimes I watch a movie and I'll reimagine how I wish it would have happened. This is a scene here that I think every time I read it, like my, my blood just starts to boil as Jesus is mocked, right? As they say, he saved others, he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. And what I want to happen, I want Jesus to do it, right? I want one more punk to say he saved others, he can't save himself. And then Jesus is like, all right, right in some, I don't know, awesome sound. And he jumps off there, maybe he hovers down, I don't know. And people are freaking out. And maybe he flexes and then yells. That's what I imagine. They said, if he came down, then we'd believe. And they're, they're probably right. In that moment, they probably would realize, oh my goodness, he is the son of God. But they wouldn't be able to believe in his death to save them from sin if he jumped off that cross. They mocked him saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. And they'd heard what Jesus had done. They'd heard how he'd healed people. They, I'm sure, had heard that he said, your sins are forgiven. And they mocked, noting now that he can't save himself. And they're right. In a very real way, he couldn't save himself, not if he was to pay for sin. That's what Jesus came to do, and Matthew establishes that in his gospel right away. And in 121, talking about Mary, it says, She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Even his name, Jesus, it means Yahweh saves. In Matthew 2, the infant Jesus goes to Egypt. So there's this self-identifying with Israel who went down to Egypt. Why? Because he was going to save his people from their sin. In Matthew 4, He's tempted by Satan. He's really tempted by Satan. And he's, he's showing his triumph over sin. He's showing that, that he was, he'd removed himself from sin because he came to save his people from sin. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus talks about kingdom life. He talks about the life that's been transformed away from this sinful life into this, this, this life of, of living in Christ because he came to save people from their sin. And we can trace this all the way through Matthew, but let's fast forward to the Last Supper. Matthew 26, verses 27 and 29. It says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. No longer 
would the blood of a lamb be needed. Jesus, the spotless lamb, would shed his blood as the once and for all sacrifice. So they mocked him, saying that he could save others but could not save himself. They didn't understand the truth in their words. In order to save others, he could not choose to save himself. And while it was nails that physically held him to the cross, it was his resolve to love his father by doing his will, his resolve to love you and me that kept him up on that cross. He saved us by refusing to save himself. Verse 50, Jesus breathes his last breath. He's died. Then a rich man named Joseph asked Pilate for the body of Jesus in order to give him a proper burial. The next day we're told that the religious leaders gather. They'd remembered that Jesus had said he would rise from the dead on the third day, so they decided to put together this, uh, this guard, the best group of guards that they could to make sure that no one could come and steal the body from the tomb, claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. And now Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Jesus had risen from the dead, defeating sin and death. It changes everything. Over the next 40 days, Jesus appeared to hundreds of people all over Jerusalem. There were eyewitnesses of Jesus resurrected. If the opponents of Jesus wanted to squash this brand new Christian religion, all they had to do was get the body out. Like Ron said last week, all they had to do was show the dead body of Jesus and it would all be done. Instead, in 20 years time, this brand new Christianity, this new religion went from a tiny religion with, with just a few handful of followers to a world religion. In Matthew 27, we read about the soldiers, we read about the, the onlookers and the religious leaders that mocked Jesus. And, and what's tragic to me is they were so close, at least their words were so close. In all the mocking, it just drips with arrogance. They thought they knew what was true about Jesus. They thought their mocking was ironic, but the irony was that their words were right. And they were wrong. They thought they knew all about Jesus that they needed to know, but they didn't know who Jesus was. And we don't know, we don't know what happened to all of them. After the news of the resurrection, we don't know if they stayed in the same place. If so, that would be a tragedy. I hope that at least some of them, I'm sure that at least some of them, I'm guessing that at least some of them, I should say, uh, came to believe that Jesus was the king, that, that he was the king who came to save them by refusing to save himself. I hope they realize the power that Jesus has to save sinners 
from death and to reconcile them from God. On Sundays right now, we're going through the book of the Acts. It's right after uh, the four gospels and it begins with the ascension of Jesus. And it's just filled with accounts of people hearing the good news. It's filled with accounts of the early church proclaiming the good news that Jesus died to save sinners and that he'd risen from the dead. And I'm sure that, that some, some of the ones that we're reading about were the mockers that we just read about. Even though they once mocked Jesus, the gospel invited them to turn to him, to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection to save them from sin. And that's what the gospel still does today. Right? The good news is just as good today as it was then. It invites, it invites everyone to believe in Jesus. Jesus, in his great love, invites you to trust in him, to stop trying to make your life work on your own and to trust in him. Let me close with these verses from earlier in Matthew, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. He says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does the news of the resurrected King Jesus change for you today? We pray with me. Jesus, we thank you that we can come and celebrate that you did not remain dead, but that you rose from the dead. You defeated death. And Jesus, now we can have life in you. And I just, I pray for everyone that's in the room or watching online, Lord, I pray that, that we would consider the resurrection, whether this is the first time we've considered it or, or the millionth time, Lord, I pray that the resurrection, the news that you rose from the dead, would change us, God, that we would choose to believe in you, that we would stop trying to be the king of our own lives, and that we would let you be the king, the rightful king, Lord. Jesus, we love you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.